0: Hi there, everybody. This is John Allen, the editor of Crux, and this is Last Week in the Church. On today's menu, we've got a verdict for virtue in the Vatican, or is it? Mixed messages from the church about the Biden inauguration. Is the pope going to Iraq or not? Uh, And finally, Italy's political soap opera and its Catholic context. That's what's waiting for you on the other side, so please stick around. All right, we begin with what is being hailed as a dramatic verdict for virtue uh, in the Vatican. This week, a Vatican court sentenced the longtime former president of the the Vatican Bank, uh, technically known as the Institute for the Works of Religion, uh, an Italian layman by the name of Angelo Caloia, to eight years in prison along with the lawyer who served the Vatican Bank during the same period of time, which was essentially 1989 to 2009, uh, another Italian layman by the name of Luigi uh, sorry Gabriele Liozzo to he also got eight years in prison and his son Lamberto Liozzo uh, got five years in prison all for essentially allegedly defrauding the Vatican Bank of about seventy million dollars yes, you heard me correctly seventy million dollars. Basically, the charge is that between 2001 and 2008, meaning the end of Caloia's uh, reign uh, as the Vatican Bank president, uh, as a footnote, he took over the reins of the Vatican Bank from the legendary American Archbishop Paul Marcinkus. You may remember Marcinkus as a key figure in the Vatican Bank scandals of the 1970s and early 80s, meaning the Vatican Bank over a 30-year run was essentially two for two uh, in picking presidents who ended up uh, in some kind of financial mess. Uh, So the charge uh, is that Caloia, in concert with the Liuzzo family, basically this father and son team, uh, sold off about 70% of the property that the Vatican Bank owned at that time, which, by the way, uh, included a number of very nice apartments in major Italian cities. So Rome, Milan, Naples, Venice. Uh, And the claim uh, that was at the heart of the indictment, uh, which first serviced in 2014 and seven years later has finally ended in a verdict, uh, is that they sold those properties significantly below market value uh, in exchange for what amounts to kickbacks. So, I mean, basically it works like this. Uh, you know, a businessman wanted to buy a million-dollar apartment from the Vatican Bank in Milan. The deal was: you're only going to pay five hundred thousand for this apartment, but you're going to pay me two hundred thousand dollars for my services. Um, now, it was never that direct because these payments were routed through an almost infinite uh, network of bank accounts and holding companies and, and real estate firms that basically exist only on paper, making it very difficult to trace. Uh, but I- in essence, that's the idea, uh, that they gave sweetheart deals uh, on properties in exchange for, uh, for kickbacks, for graft, uh, in that uh, complessively, that is all in, Uh, the loss, as compared to what the Vatican Bank would have made had these properties been sold at full market value, was about $70 million U.S., uh, and that about $30 million uh, of that $70 ended up in the pockets of these three guys. Uh, So they have been sentenced to prison terms. They have also uh, been sentenced to paying fines. Uh, the funds that were gained as a result of these maneuvers have been confiscated. They have also been barred from ever holding office in the Vatican again. So this is being hailed by people who were involved in this and, and by backers of Pope Francis's financial reform as one of the most dramatic reform moves to date because this is the first time that a senior Vatican official, not an Italian financier or banker, somebody who wasn't really a Vatican insider, but a consummate Vatican insider, the president of the Vatican's own bank for 20 years, uh, has been sentenced to jail time for financial crime. It is also the first time that a trial like this was seen from start to finish Uh, entirely on the Vatican's own initiative. Uh, This is not the first time somebody connected to the Vatican has ended up in the dock for financial crime. But typically that's because there was an Italian civil investigation to which the Vatican was forced to react. But in this case, the initial reports, the investigation, the legal process, soup to nuts, all of it was on the Vatican's own initiative, on the Vatican's own dime. So the current lawyer for the the Vatican Bank who was asked on Italian television this week to explain the significance of this verdict gave us a great soundbite. He said it means the party is over, Uh, that in the future we are committed to zero tolerance uh, and that we are committed to transparency and accountability. Now, if you want the class half-empty reading of all this, however, let's note a couple of caveats. Uh, One, Uh, Caloia, uh, the the central figure in all of this, is 81 years old. Liuzzo, uh, the father, the former lawyer at the Vatican Bank, is 97. His son, Lamberto, uh, is in his mid-60s. And note uh, that although their their jail sentences have not been suspended, the way that the Vatican legal system, which, which is based largely on the Italian legal system, works, is that those sentences will not be implemented until they have exhausted their final appeal. And there are two levels of appeal. Uh, The lawyers for all three have indicated that they already are going to appeal. Uh, And the way these appeals often work is that they can take years uh, before they're finally adjudicated. So the truth of it is, uh, at least in terms of Kaloya, and the elder Liuzzo, it is deeply unlikely uh, that either one of these guys will ever see the inside of a jail cell. Uh, jury's still out, to, to if you'll excuse the pun, uh, on the son who is in his mid-sixties. Uh, and further, uh, even if uh, they exhausted those appeals, and even if. The convictions are upheld in full. It's also not clear whether the Italian government would agree to extradite these three guys, which is what they would have to do, uh, in order for them to spend any time in a Vatican jail cell. So, uh, at the end of the day, uh, some cynics would say, Uh, This is a fairly hollow uh, gesture in the sense that it doesn't port that many real consequences except uh, that these guys have lost access to the loot uh, that they apparently plundered. Uh, Further, uh, you know, uh, others would note uh, that in a way this is accountability, but it's accountability for the past not the present. Remember that the alleged crimes here took place somewhere between 15 and 20 years ago uh, this is not a verdict for example in the london real estate scandal that took place on pope francis's watch and may have something more directly to say about the actual situation in the vatican and the here and now but look i think at the end of the day you have to say uh, that any time there is however symbolic it may be Uh, that there is a gesture that the Vatican, in terms of money management, is moving in the direction of transparency and accountability. Even if it's in fits and starts, even if it's incomplete, even if there's unfinished business, that nevertheless is progress and undoubtedly something to be welcomed. All right, next up, the church's mixed messages on the inauguration of President Joe Biden on January 20th, which coincidentally was my 56th birthday. Uh, So what we got uh, was immediately after Biden was sworn in, once it hit noon in Washington and it became official that he was president, uh, we got a letter from Pope Francis, very brief and very friendly. Uh, basically saying uh, he wanted to wish Biden well, he's praying for the great American people, hoping the new administration will work towards greater peace, justice, tolerance, uh, and so on, Um, with no mention of any potential conflicts or any potential question marks. Simultaneously, we got a much lengthier statement from the president of the United States Bishops Conference, Archbishop Jose Gomez of Los Angeles, Uh, Also wishing the new administration well and offering congratulations, but clearly and at some length uh, going into concerns uh, that the USCCB has, suggesting that the new administration is likely to promote uh, moral evil, uh, particularly in areas such as abortion, contraception, marriage and gender. Sort of drawing clear lines in the sand uh, on those issues. Uh, and and suggesting a, a much less enthusiastic uh, embrace of the new administration than, than we got from Rome. Uh, and to to just add another layer of complexity to that, not long after that statement from Archbishop Gomez ostensibly in the name of the U.S. bishops appeared, Cardinal Blaise Supich of Chicago uh, took to uh, Twitter to basically say, well, you know, I don't know which, which bishops you're speaking for, but it certainly isn't me. Uh, he called this statement ill-considered. Uh, he said it had not gone through the normal consultation process in the bishops that it should have, that it wasn't run by the administrative committee of the conference and so on, Saying, calling this an institutional failure uh, that is going to have to be addressed and basically in every way possible, distancing himself from this statement. Uh, now, in a way, you know, this is not terribly unfamiliar. We will remember when Barack Obama uh, was elected president of the United States in 2008, Pope Benedict XVI immediately, that day, November 5th, uh, sent a letter congratulating the president-elect. And the Vatican newspaper began a series of very laudatory articles, uh, even defending Obama uh, against uh, criticism from some some pro-life forces uh, in the church uh, saying that he is not a pro-abortion president all of that raised the hackles of the president of the conference at the time, Cardinal Francis George of Chicago, who was trying to take a tougher line with the new administration. So in a sense, this isn't terribly new. What is new, of course, are the fissures, the visible public fissures within the bishops' conference itself. That is largely due to eight years of Pope Francis' appointments. Uh, Cardinal Supich, of course, uh, is, is Pope Francis's man in America uh, in many ways. And so those divisions are now on clear public display and in a way, probably not, uh, not all that surprising. Uh, but here's what I think the main takeaway from all this ought to be. These divisions we're seeing between Catholics who are almost desperate to embrace the turn of the page that the Biden administration represents, the, the new leash on life, the, this effort to restore decency and civility and rationality to public discourse, not to mention truth, uh, that that division. So Catholics who feel that, and Catholics who feel a sincere, deep moral conviction to the defense of unborn life, and who are concerned about what a democratic administration and a situation in which Democrats control both houses of the legislature, what that might portend. Uh, in terms of uh, the expansion of abortion rights and further assaults on in the unborn, that's not just a division between two camps in the division in the bishops' conference. That's a division that runs through many individual Catholic hearts. It runs through my heart. Uh, and so, analyzing this situation largely in terms of rivalries between different factions doesn't quite get the whole picture. The real problem. I think, that the Biden administration faces vis-a-vis the church is that a lot of people who want to be with him on a lot of other things are going to be alienated, perplexed, and scared if, in fact, the administration turns out to move as aggressively and dramatically uh, on some of these moral issues, particularly abortion, as some fear. In other words, for Biden to thread the needle with the Catholic Church in America, it's not just a matter of hoping that the pro-Biden faction is larger than the anti-Biden faction in the Bishops' Conference. Uh, It's a matter of reaching into those individual Catholic hearts and persuading them that he is not going to be their enemy. We will see how it plays out. Uh, All right, Uh, third up today, is the Pope going to Iraq or not? You may remember that in December, in what was widely considered a surprise, the Vatican announced that Pope Francis would be traveling to Iraq March 5th through the 8th. Now, not a surprise in the sense that we have known that popes since John Paul II desperately wanted to go to Iraq, but to announce that in the middle of a global pandemic and an uncertain security situation, Uh, always seemed a bit dicey. Now, what has happened uh, in the weeks since, uh, over the holidays, Pope Francis gave an interview to Italian television in which he said he's not sure he's going to be able to go to Iraq because of the situation with the coronavirus, Although the Pope didn't say it, that was likely a reference to not merely the the new global spikes in coronavirus cases in many places, uh, but also the emergence of this coronavirus variant and uncertainties uh, about what that's going to mean in terms of transmission rates, infection rates, and so on. Uh, and then, of course, uh, just yesterday, we saw a suicide bombing in downtown Baghdad. Uh, although nobody's claimed responsibility yet, widely presumed to be ISIS, two suicide bombers detonated, killing 34 people, injuring 110. It was the first such suicide bombing in almost two years, uh, which, which puts, of course, new doubts about the security situation on the ground. All of this leaves people wondering whether the Pope is able, going to be able to make this trip or not. Now, I should tell you that logistical preparation is nevertheless cranking ahead. This week, the Vatican press office asked journalists who want to travel on the papal plane to submit their applications. Uh, In Iraq, the local church uh, is continuing to to make preparations for the trip. Uh, I think the, the I will tell you this. I surveyed a few of my colleagues in the Vatican press corps this morning on this point. Uh, The betting here is that most of us seem to think it's about 50-50 whether this trip actually happens. And if it does get called off, uh, it's probably going to be fairly late in the game because I think the consensus is that both in Iraq and in the Vatican, they desperately want this trip to happen, but they are also realistic enough to know that in the end, it may not be possible. I promise you this if Francis is not able to go in March, two things will happen. One, he will find some other way, some visible public way to make his concern for the church in Iraq known then. And two, he will move heaven and earth to get to Iraq at some point. Uh, Because let's face it, Uh, Iraq in many ways is one of the cradles of Christianity in in the Middle East, the the land of Christ's birth, the land where the church was born. Um, It has been perhaps the most beleaguered Christian community on the face of the planet for the last decade. I think any Pope, uh, Francis included, would feel an enormous historic and pastoral responsibility to somehow be present to those folks. Somehow, I have confidence he will find a way. Finally, uh, although I know in the States, probably nobody has been paying attention to this, but here in Italy, we've been having our own form of political drama too. Uh, At the moment, the future of Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte is uncertain. Uh, Recently, he faced votes of no confidence uh, in the Italian uh, House of Deputies, that's the lower chamber of parliament, and also the Italian Senate. Uh, He narrowly survived those votes, uh, but in the Senate, not with the supermajority, he needs to actually govern, simply with a relative majority, which means of those voting, he had more votes than the people who wanted him out. Uh, now, uh, the clock is ticking for Conte to be able to, to, to build on that majority to show that he has the capacity to, to actually get things done were he to remain in power. Was, most people believe it's about a two-week window. If not, there may have to be new elections here in Italy. Now, if you know anything at all about Italy, you might say, so what? Uh, and really, you'd be right. Do you know? that since the launch of the Italian Republic in 1946, 75 years ago, there have now been 67 different governments. That means Italians changed government about, every one year and eight months. It's the favorite indoor sport uh, in this country. Uh, And so, you know, at one level you might say, well, this is just the same old, same old. That's true, uh, except that there is a bit of kind of Catholic context to this that makes it interesting because Conti, who remember uh, came to power in 2018 as a compromise between two different parties whose coalition eventually fell apart, but Conti has stuck around, He has no political base of his own. He was never a member of a political party. Uh, He was simply somebody who people felt didn't have any baggage uh, and therefore was kind of unobjectionable at the time. Uh, He may be forced by dint of circumstance to to try to put together his own political coalition. And he is apparently trying to premise that on two things, centrism, that is being neither hard right nor hard left, and two, Catholicism. Uh, that is, he'd like to appeal to the Catholics in all the main parties uh, because Conte himself is a very devout practicing Catholics and, and Catholic and he believes uh, that getting the socially progressive Catholics on the right and the morally serious Catholics uh, on, or the more morally traditional Catholics on the left um, could be a prescription for a governing coalition. Uh, The Vatican has a kind of rooting interest uh, in all of this uh, because the alternative, really, if Conte's government is to fall, the most plausible alternative would be new elections at some point in the the near future. And one plausible outcome there is that the winner could be the leader of the far-right anti-immigrant Lega party, Matteo Salvini, which would mean that the Vatican, having survived the Trump years in D.C., may be headed right back for them uh, in its own backyard. So behind the scenes, uh, most people of influence uh, in the church uh, have been trying to do what they can directly and indirectly uh, to indicate their support for Conti pulling it off. One typically Italian footnote. Uh, One of the strategies uh, that Conti's team apparently had uh, for trying to increase their majority was appealing to a small centrist party here in Italy known as the UDC, or the Democratic Centrist Union. Uh, And they have three votes in the Senate, which would be half of what Conti needs to get to that supermajority. Unfortunately, the head of that party was just indicted in a mob sting uh, for being on the mafia's payroll in southern Italy. He was forced to resign. Uh, And so it's utterly unclear, actually, who could make this decision uh, for the party right now. Uh, And so that, too, is chaotic, unclear, and up in the air, which, frankly, could be the epitaph for Italian politics at most times. But God help me, ladies and gentlemen, I do love it so. Uh, all right. Uh, that is our show for this week. Let me say this. Uh, if you enjoy what you see on Last Week in the Church, if you find it a hoot, if you find it informative, whatever it may be, please give us a like, give us a thumbs up, give us a, a retweet, you know, wh- whatever, it, whatever social media instrument you have to express approval. Uh, we would be deeply grateful because that's how we get in front of more eyeballs and that's how we spread the word. All right, we will be back here next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.